You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Goblin Panda might be out and about. Ubiquity confirms that an extortion attempt was made, but says the attempted attack on data and source code was unsuccessful. The Excellion Compromise claims more university victims. It's National Supply Chain Integrity Awareness Month in the U.S. Andrea Little-Limbago from Enteros on supply chain resilience in a time of tectonic geopolitical shifts. Our guest is Paul Nicholson from A10 Networks on their State of DDoS Weapons Report and some down-market phishing attempts. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner, back again with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 2nd, 2021. Domain Tools has a rundown on how both state security services and criminal gangs continue to use COVID-19-themed phishing against a wide range of targets. They're following one campaign which delivers a decoy document to the user which leverages a signed binary and a modified DLL to execute a Cobalt Strike beacon payload. Some of the activity is suggestive of Goblin Panda, a threat group aligned with the Chinese government that's collected most actively against Southeast Asian targets and especially against Vietnam. Ubiquity has confirmed it was the victim of an extortion attempt in January, the record reports, but the IoT shop hasn't said that either personal data or source code were compromised, as a whistleblower had it. The company's statement did say that it had brought in external security experts to help investigate the incident. Quote, These experts identified no evidence that customer information was accessed or even targeted. The attacker, who unsuccessfully attempted to extort the company by threatening to release stolen source code and specific IT credentials, never claimed to have access to any customer information. This, along with other evidence, is why we believe that customer data was not the target of or otherwise accessed in connection with the incident. End quote. Security Week notes that Ubiquity shareholders have taken a bit of a bath after the incident came to light, with its share price falling from $350 on March 31st to $290 yesterday. Markets are always jumpy on bad news, however murky or disputed that news may be. 
The Excellion compromise continues to affect users of the company's file transfer accessory, with a wave of universities reporting data breaches. The Klopp ransomware gang, also tracked as the possibly distinct but associated threat actor UNC-2582, is leaking information stolen during its operations. Student, faculty, and staff data at Stanford, the Harvard Business School, the University of Maryland, Baltimore, and the University of California have been posted affected. Some individuals have begun receiving ransom notes. The Excellion incident is an instance of the kind of software supply chain risk the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the intelligence community are currently interested in addressing, in part through a program designed to raise awareness of the problem. April has been declared by CISA and the National Counterintelligence and Security Center as the fourth annual National Supply Chain Integrity Month, with a call to action for organizations across the country to strengthen their supply chains against foreign adversaries and other potential risks. It's April, people. Do you know where your supply chain is? Be on the lookout for Alexander Yorich Korshunov, an SVR officer wanted by the FBI for conspiracy to commit theft and attempted theft of trade secrets. The wanted poster is helpfully available in Russian as well. The indictment itself was unsealed in 2019. The wanted poster is worth a look for two reasons, at least. First, the crime alleged involves theft of corporate trade secrets, and it's a useful reminder that there are laws against doing that, too. Stealing classified information isn't the only thing that will get you into hot water. Second, it's worth noting that once the FBI has its teeth into someone, it's loath to let go, whether that someone can be readily extradited or not. And finally, a couple of notes about down-market phishing attempts. The first is the more sophisticated of the two. Security firm Avanon describes the curious case of a legitimate business using phishing techniques to attract business— A business, we should say, that is in other respects legitimate, that is, it delivers a legal and real service. It's not the usual straight-up scam we're accustomed to seeing with phishing attempts, the widow of the Nigerian prince, the email from country X's minister of the gosh-darn oil, and so on. In this case, Avanon says that one para-LLC, a firm based in the silver state of Nevada, is using, quote, all the methods you would expect from a well-organized phishing spam campaign, spoofing the sender in the email header to impersonate an email from the organization, rotating domains and links, rotating the sending IP addresses, and changing the subjects and bodies of the emails themselves, end quote. The point is to lend legitimacy to the appeal for business by presenting an appearance similar to that of a state employee pension fund. Even the firm's name nudges in that direction since PARA is a commonly used acronym for Public Employee Retirement Account. That similarity and the various solicitations coming from the Nevada-based business has prompted at least one lawsuit. Legal Newsline reported in October that a Colorado Public Employee Retirement Association, which also goes by PARA, filed a complaint in a Denver court in an attempt to get PARA LLC to quit it. The plaintiff alleges that Para LLC has solicited Colorado's public employees under false pretenses and has misrepresented that the third-party investment representatives are approved by Para or the Para employee when they are not. It adds, 
Para LLC has contacted thousands of Colorado public employees in an effort to take advantage of and benefit from Para's goodwill and reputation with its membership. End quote. The case has been moved to federal court at the defendant's request, where it's on a pandemic-related hold. This isn't unsophisticated, so why do we suggest it's down-market? Well, we do so because it reminds us of a family of physical junk mail that clogs our physical mailboxes. A company sends a prospectus in a plain, vaguely official-looking envelope without the gaudy colors and other meretricious trappings of junk mail. It may even be festooned with some vaguely heraldic-looking device. Eagles are nice in the U.S. We assume Canadian junk mail gets maple leaves with other national styles imitated elsewhere. You open it, maybe expecting something from, oh, Medicare or the tax people or the local water department, but a close reading leads you to say phooey and be done with it. So perhaps this is a natural evolution of junk mail into the virtual realm. The other phishing attempts we'll mention, and we promise this is the last of it today, come to us from security firm Greathorn, which is throwing up its hands at the lame stuff that's in circulation. Here's one example. A couple of bogus messages misrepresent themselves as originating from Microsoft Teams. The fish bait is a communication about bonuses, and the first message tells the recipient to just send it over now. You have wasted time a lot. There are two problems with this. First of all, there's an improper comma splice joining the two independent clauses, and a lot is misspelled as one word. Second, the tone is angry and impatient, which isn't in most people's experience the way businesses tend to communicate by text. There's a follow-on message also reaching for a sense of urgency. If I don't respond within a timely manner, you would loose the bonuses. What do you mean, I? And are we going to loose the bonuses the way the Titans in that movie would loose the Kraken? Even the Titans got it wrong. Our ancient mythology desk wonders what a Germanic kraken is doing over there in Greek mythology. Anyway. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. 
Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Distributed denial-of-service attacks tend to make news whenever a new record is set for the number of bots in a botnet or the traffic being unleashed on a victim. The tools available to DDoS perpetrators continue to evolve in their sophistication. The team at A10 Networks recently published their State of DDoS Weapons Report. Paul Nicholson is Senior Director of Product Marketing at A10 Networks. So this report is a little bit unique compared to others because we're tracking DDoS weapons, and these are potential weapons which could be used to attack networks. So we think this is very useful for the community out there to look at what types of attacks could hit their network and what they need to defend against. So I think it actually helps a lot of organizations shore up their defenses. Well, before we, we dig into some of the details here, can you give us a, a little uh, idea of where we stand? What, where, what's the state of things? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because this data is some of the first data which is, we've had, uh, which uh, reflects the impact of COVID-19 and what might uh, have happened out there. So what we've seen from our honeypots and other sources is the number of weapons has increased in the second half of 2020. So it went up from uh, 10 million to 12.5 million. Um, and this, this is kind of in line with what we've seen over our, all our reporting periods from 2018 through now, which is roughly a 12% increase um, uh, over time. So this problem is uh, getting larger. And even with the pandemic, it, that hasn't changed. As we look forward, what's your outlook here? I mean, in, in terms of this this arms race between the, the folks coming at us and the defenders, um, what do you think we're in for in the next year or so? Well, one thing, um, I, I think we've seen the trend. Like I said, I think it was, I said it was like 12% um, increase over the reporting period from 2018. So we don't necessarily see a change in the, you know, the landscape in terms of will it escalate? It probably will, because you look at the new technologies out there like 5G and some of these other things, it's basically the ability to transmit more data more frequently from more different devices and IoT devices, of course, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of potential vectors out there uh, for for exploiting. So we think it will increase. The good news, however, is I, I, I'm heartened to see there's a lot more data going out there, whether it's the AWS threat report, which also sometimes mentions DDoS attacks, or there's some very good information I was just reading recently where Microsoft has um, um, given a lot of statistics around what attacks they're seeing on the Azure network, uh, public, by the way. So having this data, I think, and also this threat report, obviously, it allows someone who's maybe doing corporate defenses or service provider defenses uh, a window into what the community is seeing out there and allows them to think, hey, you know, I see A10 mentioned SSDP is the top amplification weapon out there in this report. Maybe I should see, A, if I should have it enabled or where I should lock it down, etc., cetera, um, just so that they can't participate in a potential attack out there as um, a system which is being used in an amplification attack, as an example. 
That's Paul Nicholson from A10 Networks. There is a lot more to our interview. Don't forget to go listen to extended versions of this and many other interviews at CyberWire Pro. It's on our website, thecyberwire.com. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little-Limbago. She's the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, You are going to be doing a presentation at this year's RSA, which is, of course, uh, virtual and online. And you're going to be talking about supply chain resilience, a lot of geopolitical stuff going on in the world these days. What can you share with us about your presentation? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You know, there's a lot going on as far as transformations and the, the way that the world's even just being structured and the, with the tech wars going on, trade wars, obviously the pandemic continues to, to disrupt. And really, it's been something that has upended supply chains across the globe. And you know, looking at that, but overlaying it with some of the discussions that you and I have had in the past about digital authoritarianism and digital democracies and, and that divide that's going on as far as the splintering of the internet and really bring all these multiple layers together to uh, highlight a way ahead um, during such a time of disruption. And it really, you know, it's, it's amazing just how much has shifted over the last year and how much things are really continuing to shift. And when you think about supply chain resilience, you know, we, we've heard a lot, you know, almost a year ago about uh, the shortage in various kinds of um, personal protective equipment, but we've also seen very much so manufacturing shifts. We've seen the impact of geographic concentration risks. And then you've got issues of product risk um, that we've have seen very much so highlighted really over the last year as well. And so a lot of these trends that were underlying prior to COVID have been accelerated. And we'll be looking at how, viewed through the lens of, of the techno dictators and what the democracies are doing uh, in return, we're looking at through that lens as far as, you know, what is the way ahead? And, and you know, with a focal point being that you know, we can either allow the techno dictator model to, to continue to disrupt, or we need to really have a, a solid and strong democratic alternative. And so we'll talk about what some of those alternatives might be. We'll address some of the steps that democracies are already taking, um, which are, you know, actually over the last year, again, there have been a lot of changes in that area. And, you know, even on top of all of that is how in industrial policy and cyber policy are really starting to integrate quite a bit as far as even on, on the tech stacks that are becoming uh, a means of dividing between trusted and untrusted networks. So it's a lot that we're packing in, um, but there's a lot going on in the world right now. So hopefully I'll be pulling it together into a coherent story um, with some recommended paths ahead. You know, you, you use the term uh, techno-dictator. Can you, can you uh, spell that out for us? What, what does that mean? Sure, absolutely. And so what we've seen over the last few years, you know, I really and it started in the world of cyber norms, which are basically the rules of the road for how you behave in cyberspace. 
And the techno dictators are those that the the governments that are really using a whole range of digital information technology uh, to surveil, repress, manipulate information. It's really for complete information control. And what we saw a lot was they started off using a lot of these mechanisms domestically, but then they apply them internationally. And so from the whole range of disinformation to cyber attacks, but also you know, thinking about on, on the tech side, leveraging technology for implementing backdoors um, for access, um, and then even just thinking about you know, the surveillance and repression that's going on uh, across the globe and internet blackouts. So it's really full information control is what is the is the strategy for the techno dictators, and it has been able to spread for quite some time. And it's been over a decade now where we've seen internet freedoms decline, we've seen de- democracy decline for over a decade. So it's really having a global impact, and it hasn't been until very recently where we've started seeing democracies really realize that they need to get into the game of. Uh, figuring out what an alternative counterweight might be. And it has taken you know, a lot for both the, on the purely cybersecurity side, looking at the various norms and how those are trying to be shaped through the international governmental organizations, but it's also seeing how the supply chains are being used as well uh, as, as a mode for uh, disruption and, and also as a mode for, for compromise. And so a lot of this discussion will be bringing together trade policy and cyber policy and how they overlap, especially when it comes to various kinds of technologies uh, that are out there. Yeah, you know, I, I've seen uh, word coming out of the Biden administration, for example, that this is something that they may be focusing on, that we don't, uh, to, to try to ease up some of that dependence on on some of the foreign nations that we might have adversarial relationships with, that, uh, you know, there needs to be more than one source for some of these things. Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly right. We're seeing it a whole lot more being discussed. There was executive order just went out that, addressed as one component of it the need for working with alliances and for creating a means to have alternative suppliers um, so you don't have all your eggs in one basket like we've had for quite some time. And so and, and it's not just the U.S. And this is, I think, for me, one of the most important parts of this is while the U.S. has elevated the, the, this role of you know, what a digital democracy could do, especially they've been, you know, the U.S. has mainly been working on it through you know, sticks versus carrots as far as um, implementing a range of prohibited companies that from from any kind of partnership. But across the globe, we're seeing both other democracies are, are doing that as well as far as prohibiting certain companies, but also this, there's this really big push towards alliances. And that's what where I see a lot of transformation starting to emerge is having the democracies come together as an alliance. And so one that helps overcome issues of protectionism because no country can be completely self-sufficient. We still have a global economy. And so looking at how the, the various democracies and like-minded nations can come together create various kinds of alliances to create greater security. And you know, there's a lot of tech and research components that go under that. Uh, it gets into trusted software and hardware. And so it really gets into the entire tech stack um, as, and, you know, and brings in as well these digital norms of, of what's appropriate behavior um, as well. So it really brings together all different components of, of cybersecurity together into an alliance system, which uh, I think is, you know, it's a bit overdue, but it's one of those things that um, we've been living in, in the post-World War system for quite some time, and we really need to evolve it into the digital era. And this is one way that we're seeing that. And you know, one a good example of it is, is the Quad, which is uh, India, Australia, uh, the U.S. and Japan, looking at building trusted supply chains together. And so it's, it's something to keep an eye on uh, over the next year. But definitely you know, it's something that was in, in the most recent executive order, and it's something that we keep seeing other democracies as well saying it's, it's increasingly a priority for them too. All right. Well, Andrea Little Limbago, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you.
that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Quality never goes out of style. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. We hope you'll take a few moments this weekend and check out Research Saturday and my conversation with Fernando Martinez and Tom Hagel from AT&T Alien Labs on malware using the new Izuri memory loader. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening, and special thanks to Elliot Peltzman for filling in yesterday. We'll see you all back here next week. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.